The True Worship, by J. S. Blackburn. Chapter 10, In Spirit, and, by the Spirit, the essentially spiritual nature of the activity called the True Worship must now be given special consideration. One of the most renowned stories of the ancient world is that of how Pompey, commissioned from Rome by the Senate to pacify the East, came from his victory over the Seleucid to Jerusalem. While there, he insisted, against all the entreaties of a terrified priesthood, on entering the temple's inner sanctuary. He approached the curtains. He was about to encounter the most famous god of the ancient world, Jehovah of Israel, in his shrine. With sword drawn, he pulled aside the curtains, and found, nothing. The sanctuary was empty. Alone among all the temples of the world, there was no idol or image in the temple of Jehovah. Although for the time then present, his dwelling place was a house of stone and gold, of beauty and glory, it was even then true that God is a spirit, and when the true worship came, the splendor of an earthly sanctuary would disappear, and that worship is seen to be an entirely spiritual activity. Two sentences in particular present the essential spirituality of the true worship, John chapter 4 verse 24, they that worship him must worship him in spirit, in truth, has been previously considered, and Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, worship by the spirit of God, rv. The former expression, in spirit, presents the location or place of the true worship in distinction from Jerusalem or Gerizim, by the Spirit of God, states the unique power for it. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Thus the woman poses the question, in what place should men worship? In his immediate answer Jesus makes two distinctions. He distinguishes the Jewish from the Samaritan worship in that the former was in an important sense a genuine worship of the God of the Bible, based on a real knowledge of that God revealed. Whereas the latter was a spurious worship based on ignorance of God. Jesus also distinguishes both these, at Jerusalem and Gerizim, from the worship for which the hour had already struck, when the true worshippers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Attention has already been drawn to the fact that the Jewish and Samaritan worship were alike in that they both consisted in a system of priesthood and sacrifice. But at this moment we concentrate on the fact that they had also in common the idea of an earthly location solely appropriate to worship. The Lord's answer sweeps away the whole concept of an earthly sanctuary, even when, as at Jerusalem, it had been for former times the ordinance of Jehovah the God of Israel. The Jewish Christians addressed in Hebrews were taunted with having no priest, no sanctuary, no altar. The Spirit of God, in that epistle does not answer that priests would appear with garments of glory and beauty, that earthly sanctuaries of imposing magnificence and valid sanctity would eventually appear for the Christian company. He replies that they did already possess a high priest, never to be superseded, but he was in heaven, and hence not visible on earth at all, they did possess an altar, but of an entirely spiritual kind. In answer to the woman's question, the Saviour did not say that the day would dawn when Malines Cathedral would be built, and all the churches from the humblest village church to St. Peter's itself. He spoke of the hour already come, when the place of the true worship would be in human spirits, born of the Spirit, and where the well of the Spirit would be springing up into everlasting life. With these words he obliterated forever the whole notion of an earthly sanctuary, and firmly and finally located the true worship in the spirits of redeemed men and women. The reason for this is given. It is that God is a spirit, and the worship of their hearts must answer to the nature of God. In the previous chapter of this gospel it is said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What, in the believer, is born of God, is not of the nature of flesh, but of spirit, it does not belong to the material part of man, but to the spiritual part. It is a creative act of God relating to man's spirit, and here is the realm in which worship rises to God. In a great cathedral, the eye of God rests on, and the ear of God is open to, what is taking place in the spirits of the worshippers. And all the trappings of an earthly sanctuary are simply disobedience to him. 
they do not and cannot, assist. They can only hinder, by encouraging something other than the true worship in spirit and in truth. My spirit prays, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 14. In the church he prays and sings and blesses with his spirit, with his understanding, and with his heart. Indeed, it would be appropriate at this point to recall how all that has gone before has prepared us for this emphasis on the location of worship in the spirits of men and women. We saw that worship is an attitude of spirit, taken by man realizing the presence of God revealed. The sacrifices of the true worship are spiritual sacrifices, and one chapter was devoted to inquiring what these sacrifices are. Let us consider again the gathering for the Lord's Supper described in the prologue. In such a gathering, they are either active in heart and spirit, engaged with the Father and the Son, the love of God and the blood of Christ, or there is nothing. Every external and material thing has been deliberately reduced to a cipher. The loaf and the cup proclaim themselves not to be looked at, but to be the appointed means whereby what they represent forms the meditation of the spirits of those assembled. To contemplate this presents a challenge to all who attempt what these men and women attempted. The beam of attention, as it is with the eye and heart of God, is entirely concentrated on what is taking place in the spirits of the worshippers. Every moment in which we have to say, no infant's changing pleasure is like my wandering mind, represents a victory for the tempter. F. W. Grant has left us a striking comment on Abraham and Lot. When we would be with him, in our seasons of habitual or special devotion, how often do we, realize the intrusion of other thoughts, unwelcome as, to Lot, were the men of Sodom. We are apt, to seek to silence conscience with the thought that they are unwelcome, as if this relieved us from responsibility about them. But why had Abraham no such intruders? The thoughts that throng upon us when we would gladly be free, at the Lord's table, have we no responsibility for these? The effort to obtain what when obtained we can so little retain, while other things flock in with so little effort. Does it not reveal the fact of where we are permitting our hearts to settle down? There is indeed a limitless wealth of substance, in connection with the Father and the Son. To occupy the spirits of the redeemed both now and forever in adoring contemplations and the glory and beauty of Christ, and his title to everlasting glory and blessing through the blood of his sacrifice. To us, as to the first disciples the Lord asks. Could ye not watch with me one hour? In the second place the essentially spiritual nature of the true worship is connected with the fact that the Spirit of God is its sole energizing power. We worship by the Spirit of God. In John chapter 7 verses 37 to 38 there is a reference to thirsting and drinking and living water. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me, and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The explanation follows, this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. This explanation doubtless applies also to the similar references in John chapter 4 verses 13 to 14, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Thus we have here two directions of the Spirit's flow in the believer. Springing up, and, flowing out. For the moment, great as is the importance of an outflow to the thirsty world around, we must concentrate on the, springing up. For the Saviour leads directly on to explain that this springing up is in the true worship. Worship is the springing up of the Holy Spirit in believers. The same person and power which satisfies the thirsty spirit, empowers the satisfied spirit to rise up in worship to the Father. On this note we bring to an end our study of the words of Jesus to the woman at Sychus well. Christian worship is the outflow to the Father of hearts and spirits that have found the delight by the Spirit in the Father and in the Son.
by Christ, says the Apostle, we have access by one Spirit to the Father, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18. No power other than the Holy Spirit is adequate for such worship, but the Holy Spirit has been given, for Jesus has been glorified in heaven. Great as is the privilege and opportunity to engage in the true worship, the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit in believers and in the church is equal to it, and will continue so to the end. Though distractions and diversions are so numerous and so plausible, this is a context in which it remains true that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 4 to 6. He it is who has put a new song into our mouths, even praise to our God, and he it is by whose touch the strains of this song will never end. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen.